Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast Victoria the Queen, featuring Julia Baird in conversation with Caroline Baum, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. And thank you all for coming on this beautiful morning. I'm going to dive right in because I'm assuming that most of you already know Julia as a super prolific broadcaster and journalist. And uh, because we have such limited time and her book is so vast and so rich and there's so much to talk about, I thought that we would just kind of skip the introductions and, uh, and jump in. So first of all, welcome, Julia. It's thank great to you. have you here. Um, thank you. We've been trying to do this, uh, have this conversation since uh, much earlier in the year when events conspired against us, but because Byron is a place where magic happens, finally <laughs> we're here. And I've been looking forward to this for a long time, partly because um, the timing of this book seems so apposite in terms of the way it came out around the time that we were all watching The Crown mm -hmm. and also before the next film about Victoria, which we're already watching trailers of on Facebook, I'm sure, mm -hmm. uh, which is about Victoria's relationship with Abdul Karim, which we may or may not touch on. But when I was watching The Crown, I was thinking about the similarities between and the differences between our current monarch and Victoria. And of course, what struck me reading your book is that they were both young women who proved that they had strength of mind and independence of will when it came to making a love marriage. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering whether you were thinking at all about Queen Elizabeth II while you were writing about Victoria. The honest truth is I, I, I didn't think about her much during the actual writing. It's only afterwards and thinking through the crown. I know that bo they both have, um, during, the, during the final stages, um, Queen Elizabeth II finally eclipsed Victoria's longevity. So she's only she's reigned now just for one year longer, breaking Victoria's record. I knew that they both represented a kind of ordinariness, um, and they weren't kind of of, of the ilk of, of the aristocrats, um, and of and and they were both dutiful. I think uh, Queen Elizabeth II was much more constrained in a lot of ways. Victoria did things that, you know, your hair stands on in reading about it when she was, you know, sacking, keeping prime ministers out of power and yes. pulling other ones in and getting people out of cabinet and writing directly to generals in the field about how they should they conduct their war, for which she was reprimanded. She was constantly pushing the boundaries of what she was able to do. She was um, headstrong, she was passionate. It wasn't so much for her that she um, fought for a love marriage, it was that she was convinced to be, that she could be married at all because she loved mm. so much being single. As you would if you were 18 and a queen and you had palaces, you know, and she had Mendelssohn would come and she'd hold balls and dance. She loved to dance and she would dance until her shoes wore out. Um, with Ra Russian dukes, and she really did love handsome men. And it was, Ad it was Albert's turning from a kind of slightly wan, sickly, young teenager to the man who walked into Windsor Castle one afternoon who'd suddenly filled out in his chest and <laughs> grown this little moustache that she later made every member of the army wear. <laughs> um, she mandated it. Um, you know, that she was j just completely struck, mm. physically overwhelmed 
by, by him and she proposed three days later. Yes, well, I mean, she had to do the proposing. I mean, that mm. was because of protocol. Mm. He couldn't ask her. So mm. it wasn't that she was being particularly forward. She was doing what she, she was to. expected to do. Yes. Uh, we may well come back to his physique in a moment because <laughs> yes. I want to ask you about something come up to do so with soon. that. Uh, but I do just want to stay with the current Queen for the yes. moment because she is the first person that you thank in the acknowledgements. Right. And that is a very generous and gracious acknowledgement given that in fact the Windsor archives were not particularly cooperative. So I was just wondering whether you could tell us the behind the scenes story mm. of how you managed to get in there with a little mm. bit of help from a friend. <laughs> okay, so um, when I first signed this, the contract to write this book, I really somehow, now I know, naively assumed that I would be able to get into the Royal Archives where the originals of her letters and diaries and manuscripts are as well as so many other kind of fabulous mementos. Um, but I wrote repeatedly and could not get in. And they would write back to me saying, uh, you haven't written Royal History before and this is your first biography. So I try again. I've got a PhD in history, I'd say, and I'll, I'll treat the material in a really scholarly and careful fashion. And um, I was rebuffed three times and I didn't know what to do. I was still researching everywhere else, going around her to Scotland, pulling things out of Germany, around the UK. And it wasn't until I really, without even thinking, mentioned it to um, Quentin Bryce as a f private official secretary. And he was like, oh, I'm off to the palace next week. Let me talk to them. And it, <laughs> As and you it, do. Really, yeah, and it wasn't until Qu Quentin Bryce put my case repeatedly um, that I was able to gain access to the Royal Archives. And I have to tell you that they're not at all transparent about who they let in and why. There's no consistency about it, so much so to the extent that recently I gave a talk on this book and someone from the Australian Women's Weekly came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I loved the archives when I went there for my book. And I was like, why? Which is <laughs> nothing wrong with the Australian Women's Weekly. It is a fine magazine that women in my family have read for a very long time. But I would have thought the criteria on which I was being rejected might have applied as well. But nonetheless, um, I managed to get access to this. And so it's in the Round Tower at Windsor Castle... You get it. You have to wear appropriate clothes. You get a long list of what things. What do you mean by appropriate hey, clothes? Well, that's the question I asked. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. You had to wear closed shoes, and uh, yeah, I yeah, I wore <laughs> heels my first day. That was a disaster on the cobblestones. It took me about an hour to get up <laughs> up to the gates. Anyway, you you have to go through all the security. You go up the hundred stairs to the round tower. And there, in this tiny little room, you kind of get these the parchment crackling under your hands, the actual documents. You see her writing with the great emphasis she had, with triple underline, capitals, italics. And it was so bad by the end of her life. It was so difficult to understand what she actually wrote. Um, they also follow, like, they, they're, they're so careful, even when you're there, there's only two people in the room at any one time, that... They follow you to the bathroom um, so you don't take off with any documents <laughs> on the way. And that can be awkward um, sometimes if there wasn't an extra person there to take you that should speak into the intercom. And you'd go round the round tower. You would hear this, um, Dr Baird would like to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> 
again. Um, <laughs> and I just stopped drinking tea, by the way, in the morning. Everyone just dehydrates at the archives. But um, I found really fantastic and incredible things. I think part of what um, Kara's referring to is that you also sign something when you go there and they um, ask you to show them the parts of the manuscript in which you've relied on the material to them. I used so much of that original material that I sent them my whole manuscript and then months <laughs> and months and months later, it took so long, um, I got back comments, a couple of interesting points on the footnotes and the references and then requests to remove entire sections of the book. Now, I, I, want, I was going we'll to... We'll get to that. Yes, I, I think we should... Um, it's not a kind of spoiler alert, but, but I want to leave that until a little bit later because, mm -hmm. in fact, there is a very interesting kind of ethical... Yes. Uh, dilemma or paradox attached to that. Mm. But um, before we get to that, you mentioned that there was a kind of richness of, of um, documentation for you to look at there. Mm. And yet one of the great things that's so striking, one of the things that is so striking about the Victorian era is how much was burnt by members mm. of families to protect reputations. We know, of course, about Isabel Burton burning all Sir Richard Burton's papers and diaries, well, many of them. And this also happened after Victoria died. So mm. she had a particularly zealous daughter. Mm. Can you talk to us about Beatrice and how Beatrice decided what she burnt? Mm. Um, well, I think Beatrice, who was her youngest daughter um, and her close... Well, in many ways her closest daughter. They lived together for a long time. She was charged with managing Victoria's record. And she wrote in a diary every, almost every day of her life. There was a couple of weeks off around the time that Albert died. Um, uh, since she was seven years old. So m massive volumes. Um, and then there's all of her letters. And um, actually, thankfully, the, the, what has not been destroyed is her correspondence with her eldest daughter, Vicky, which mm. is very candid um, about childbirth and how hard it was and how rotten marriage could be and how seeing a bride walk down the aisle was like watching a lamb go to the slaughter. I mean... <laughs> From Queen Victoria, you know, mm. and I think a lot of this was to do with childbirth. So all of that remains intact. What Beatrice did was, um, from the point of, of um, Victoria's wedding, was rewrite <coughs> her journals, kind of with slight tweaks and edits along the way. We have some of the originals so we can know what she did and the approach she took. Um, she made her a little less emotional. Um, that She removed criticisms of her... Um, children um, and their hairstyles as she was <laughs> wont to slam them for. Um, she removed, um, as the letters, the editors of her letters did as well, that's a separate thing. Um, so, so Beatrice kind of sanitised her and kept as much pr private as she could. Even so, there's a lot remaining. Um, now, then we have the, the official editors of her letters, um, Benson and Escher. They decided that they would take out her correspondence with other women. Uh, they cut out any rude remarks she made about the French um, <laughs> and the Irish and her children. Um, so there was a fair bit to go there. Um, and um, anything that would have made her seem too assertive or unfeminine, they snipped out. And it's really only recently that, that the, the extent to which they did that has been un, uh, uncovered. I've really felt that the history of the royal family is a history of bonfires, you know. They, um, they burnt the <coughs> uh, all of her, you know, her correspondence with John Brown. Yeah. So it's almost significant, um, and the memoir she wrote about him, that all the men around her just had an absolute fit that she wanted to publish this memoir. 
of a servant that she loved. We know that there was a bonfire for 200 letters that Victoria wrote to the manager of her state in Balmoral um, about John Brown and that that manager's son found that cache of letters and blackmailed Edward VII. And Edward VII paid handsomely for them and they were burnt. We know correspondence with Abdul Karim was burnt. But again, we can glean so much from what is, what is not there as well. And there was one fragment I found in the Royal Archives I was delighted by, which was correspondence between Beatrice during the Second World War and the librarians and the archivists there saying, you know, in her spare time she was translating some things from the German to English. And they sent her these fabulous memoranda between Victoria and Albert. Now, when they fought, they wrote each other memos and they passed it through the official secretary. <laughs> and she had these, like, when she was a kid, she had temper tantrums and when she was an adult, she had what Albert called combustibles. <laughs> and she would scream and rage and then be terribly sorry and penitent and he would be have this cool anger that would burn for days. And in their correspondence, he would write, Dear child. <gasps> Mind you, she called him master. Mm. By the end of their relationship, I mean, it's fascinating what that dynamic did over time. He'd be like, Dear child, number one, if you applied cold, you know, cool logic to your thinking, you would find yourself much improved. You know. <laughs> number two, when we argue, stop following me from room to room. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> so you get this great picture. Um, Beatrice found these and went, well, what are these doing in official documents? And asked that they be destroyed. And there's the librarians going, oops, didn't think it would cause a problem. The king says, fine, send them back to her, she can burn them. But in the meantime, someone took a photo. And they're sitting there in these, and no one had ever reported on those before. So I was, I, I was thrilled to discover that some, some librarian or archivist had a rebellious heart and had mm. taken, taken mm. photos and kept those beautiful memos. God bless them. I want to go back to the kind of <coughs> physical um, uh, side of the relationship between Victoria and Albert. You mentioned the fact that when he came back with his moustache and his pecs, she just kind of went, foie, mm. and uh, proposed really almost immediately. <laughs> uh, and also that in the letters, as you say, she talks a lot about the wear and tear of childbirth, which is not surprising given mm. how many children she had. You say in the book that we know that she, she was very sexually satisfied in the marriage, which again mm. is not the impression that we have of the Victorian mm. era. How do you know about her healthy sex life and her libido and her sexual appetite? Look, she wasn't writing every single morning a Bridget Jones diary like last night, you know, eight out of ten. <laughs> That's not the kind of thing, but, w but we can see from the way that she wrote about him um, she described him, she would say, um, Albert today in his tight, literally this is exactly what she said, in his tight white pants with no underwear under them, looks spectacular. <laughs> Another insight, for example, now if any, I don't know if anyone's here has been to the Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. It's amazing. It's, it, was their, it was their holiday place. They went there a couple of times a year. It is preserved perfectly from the moment that she died. When you go in there, you see all the things that Albert designed. I believe Albert was much more Victorian than, than Victoria was. You know, he designed the billiard tables. They're a bit high so the women didn't lean over and mm. spill out. Um, <laughs> you know, but he designed, you know, the garden and sanitation systems and the nursery and the cribs and, you know, a Swiss cottage for the children and so on. 
In one of the first rooms you go to, it's called the Yellow Drawing Room, um, with the aforementioned billiard table, there is a um, little plaster cast of hands of the children as they're growing up. Um, you can see this young family and this young couple in love. There's a painting there. And on my second trip there, the guide said to me, you really should have a look at that some of these, a couple of these paintings very closely because that particular artist puts in little tricks. And I was like, hmm. So I'm standing there watching this, looking at this painting and it's of a summer's afternoon and there's three women. It's a lovely pastoral scene, grassy. And they're one, of the, one, of, one of them's holding up a parasol and there's one in the middle kind of lying back, looking dreamy and blissed out. If you look closer at this image... Now, this is one of the, f this is the, one of the first paintings that Victoria ever bought and she bought it for Albert. You look, at the first, uh, you look at the woman who's lying back with this dreamy look on her face and you'll suddenly see there's an extra pair of shoes coming out from her skirt. <laughs> and there is the shape of a man's back <laughs> under her skirt. And That's there what it a crinoline is, is for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so the, the way she, she, she spoke about him, the way she queried her doctor when he said, listen, nine, it's time. She was five foot. It had wreaked havoc on her body having nine children. Mm. And she says to him, really, but must I have no more fun in bed? Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, some historians have described her as some kind of voracious predator that destroyed her poor husband with her sexual appetites. I don't think that's correct, but I think that she had a healthy appetite and enjoyed her husband very much. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Let's just talk for a moment. Let, let's let's switch gear and go to the the other side of life, the public sort of side of life of, of them as a couple. What do you think, Julia, would have been the influence of Albert on Victoria as a queen, if he had lived? Because there is no doubt in the way you describe him in the book that he was progressive, that he had a social conscience, mm. that he was a reformer. Mm that he had lots of ideas. Sometimes he was frustrated by the fact that as consort he couldn't do as much as he wanted mm. to, but he got quite a lot of things through. So if he'd lived, what do you think would have happened? Mm. Yeah, some speculate that he would have got so involved and so interventionist that he would have pushed the bounds of constitutionality more than she did. There's no doubt that he was, I mean, he was a polymath, he was a great brain and he looked at the root causes of the problems of poverty, of sanitation and disease, of, um, he looked at the, the greatest developments in science, he was fascinated by Darwin he, and also in poetry by Tennyson, he composed things. Um, he tried to have a moderating influence on Victoria, who'd been very partisan in the first couple of years of her reign and made some great mistakes and um, was associated with the Whig Party. She was later associated with the Tories. I think that um, probably he, he would have tempered her most of all with respect to Gladstone. And, right. and I think she was quite poorly behaved towards Gladstone. She was spending a lot of time trying to give impetus to a centrist force in British politics. She had a personal clash with, with Gladstone. You know, she said, he addresses me as though he's in a public meeting. He was charmless. His wife kept mm. saying to him, you must try to charm the Queen. And there was Disraeli sending her bouquets of flowers. And 
um, you know, and delighting and charming and entertaining her and calling her the fairy queen and making her the empress of India. One great insight from a society woman of the time was that when you sit next to um, Gladstone at a dinner party, you leave the dinner thinking he is the smartest man in the world. And when you sit next to Disraeli, you leave thinking, I'm the smartest woman in the world. <laughs> and they were the personalities. Mm. And she was very much seduced by, um, by Disraeli. They both shared a love of empire. Gladstone was much more suspicious of many of the conflicts, including what was some of the ugliness in the Balkans and in Turkey. Um, and some of, the, some of the excesses of empire. Of course, she never supported him on Ireland, but almost no one did at that time. And I think it's with great regret that they didn't listen better to him. Um, but I, I, so I think his, his moderation and his sagacity is very obvious. I mean, you could also credit him for keeping the British out of the Civil War from the last memorandum he ever wrote, toning down diplomatic relations. He was, uh, and of course, there's the great exhibition of 1851, which I think was a most stupendous achievement of that century almost. Um, but his ambition was so intense and his capability so strong that I think, um, and, and his ability and his desire to come in and take Victoria's work away from her. Mm -hmm. I was really struck by that doing this book. That the more he grew in her esteem, the more she grew to rely on him, the more her own esteem and sense of herself wilted. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Um, one of the things that is so surprising about her and the way you characterise her, and you've touched on it there by talking about the way she played favourites in terms of Gladstone and Disraeli, is you do describe her as capricious. Mm. And politically, there is no greater example of that, no greater illustration than when you say that basically when she didn't like the Prime Minister of the day, she would just refuse to open Parliament. She just <laughs> wouldn't go. <laughs> oh, it wasn't... That's right. But it wasn't out of re a refusal, um, uh, not liking the Prime Minister of the day. Although, of course, she would is more likely to be persuaded if, you know, um, if it was Benjamin Disraeli. Um, and there's certainly evidence of that. But it was... This strange thing happened to her in her mourning period. I felt like a lot of people thought, well, you know, she married Albert, Albert died, then she was a widow. They did not really realising that for 40 years she ruled on her own mm. and kind of mm. entirely um, blanking out that period, during which she absolutely was capricious and self-indulgent. Mm. She didn't recognise that the extent to which her people needs, needed spectacle, needed the vi visual, the symbolism of monarchy, which is what her son Edward VII did so well and kind of and, and really restored. She worked so hard behind the scenes, but she didn't really do that. But I was fascinated by you saying, for example, her, her lack of willingness to open parliament was, yeah, a general recalcitrance on, 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 on petty, her part. Petty, very petty. But at the same time, I also think she developed a kind of social phobia. She hated eyes upon her. She, wa she was drawn to seclusion, to further and further and further away mm. up, in, up, up in the highlands. And I was also interested by looking at, if you look at the BDSM for... Um, BS DSM for grief that's now like obviously we don't want to pathologize grief it's an entirely natural and understandable phenomenon but it is n now in the appendix is the is protracted or prolonged grief and if you look at all the cri criteria for that you are bullied when you're a child you lose a parent when you're really young her father died when she was nine months old you um 
are estranged from a mother for a period and your dependence on your partner is absolute. Um, she said that Albert was, you know, her best friend, her sister, her brother, her um, lover, her mother, her advisor, her counsellor, her everything. And she believed him better than herself in every way. So she was also mourning in a particular way and I could see that it was selfish and I could see that it was indulgent and I could also have some kind of respect at the same time for the fact that in the Victorian era to become a widow, widow was a negation of self. It was an erasure of your status and your position. You were supposed to retire. You, women didn't go back to work. Male widowers did. If she was going to mourn, she was going to do it spectacularly mm. and loudly and she was going to get everyone to try to do it with her. And um, she restored a kind of significance to the status of a widow. And I think I was fascinated by that. Absolutely. And I think that there are many uh, widows today who actually feel whilst they wouldn't want to go into that kind of protracted mourning, the sensitivity and respect due to a widow in terms of the black armband. You know, mm. Now the psychology of grief in a way is that you have to move on. Everybody has to move That's on. Right. There's a statute of limitations. Well, Victoria was completely <laughs> no, the opposite no. of that. That's right. Um, I just want to talk about another relationship in the book <coughs> that you explore beautifully and, and, and with great sensitivity, given that it is a very complex relationship. And mm. that's what you call the great platonic love affair of Victoria's life, when she's a young and tentative queen mm. um, and Lord Melbourne is her counsellor mm. and advisor. So this is before <coughs> Albert has appeared on the scene. Albert arrives while L Lord Melbourne is a very powerful and dominant figure mm. in, in uh, Victoria's life. So can you talk about the dynamic between those two? Mm. Yeah, it was such a... It's a very sweet relationship in some ways. They kind of corrupted each other in others. She had never had a father figure aside from her uncle Leopold who you know mostly lived in another country. He was avuncular um, and dashing and also had the case of tragedy. He had this um, wonderful um, wife who was ascribed as half mad who dressed in boys clothes and had this affair with Lord Byron and um, he lost his son and so he was a widower too um, who'd been cuckolded and, and was kind of dealing, dealing with all attendant issues upon that. And they... I mean, he spent so much time with her, it's astonishing when you think a Prime Minister today is spending eight hours a day with the Queen. They went off riding mm. and they um, had meals together and she loved his wit. Um, he was very much laissez-faire. He was not um, interventionist. He would make her roar with laughter and she'd race back and scribble in her journal that Lord Melbourne had just said, you know... Oh, um, why do we try to make people better going into prisons? The, oh, prisons are like ballrooms, you know. Um, you're almost certainly worse coming out of it than you are going in. <laughs> and she would think that was hilarious and go back and write it. But you can also see... And also th there was this interesting... Um, look, she was embarrassed by the relationship later because she was half in love with him mm. um, and she refused to let Robert Peel become Prime Minister. She acted in a way that was completely inappropriate... To, um, to bring Lord, Lord Melbourne back. Uh, so she did later in her life say she was embarrassed by it. And there was a strange moment when she decided to marry Albert. And he was like, well, he's German. They had to talk about that. And then he said, well, he's your cousin. Um, or will he, will he side with your mother? And the night before the wedding, she comes to him. And she's all shy and nervous and anxious. And he's, she's worried because she... Um, She's lost weight, she's, she looks drawn. Basically, she wants to say to him, 
Um, she's not close at all to her own mother, um, who she didn't even tell about her engagement for a long time. Um, she wants to know if she's going to look okay. And she says to him, yeah, I'm just worried, I've lost weight. And he says to her, Victoria, you have a firm and anxious nostril. <laughs> Reassuringly. It was like, is that the best you could do, mate? And she, he cried and she cried and, um, and he said, there is no one fonder of you than I am. And she said, no, nor am I. But it was just this sweet exchange. Obviously, I don't know a woman in the world who would be flattered by such a description <laughs> today. But, um, but the relationship between them was quite fascinating. When she fell in love with Albert, um, Albert kind of needed to get um, Lord Melbourne off the scene mm. as well. ...and worked with Robert Peel behind Victoria's back. And, um, and Melbourne felt a, bit, felt, felt a bit neglected in his older age, actually. He used to drive past the palace and look into the windows. Yes, that, that's a sad yeah. description <laughs> yeah. in your book. Um, I just want to, you know, I don't want this to be sort of a, a, a trashy, gossipy conversation... ...but there is oh, one, come on. one myth <laughs> about Victoria that you don't address... ...which is apparently, we, we were talking before about her very um, vigorous or healthy sex life... Mm. I'd always thought that Victoria did not believe lesbians existed. Mm -hmm. And I looked this up the other day, and apparently that's not true. It's that not is, true. That is a myth. So that's a myth. Just comment on that. Well, no, just as in, it, it's not even, she just never had the discussion right. about it. But why, know, did it why did it become a thing that Victoria believed that such a thing was completely inconceivable? How did that happen? Because of her association with Puritanism and because of the discussions that century around homosexuality, which, right. you know, Foucault only dubbed a, a, a phenomenon in, like, the 1870s, I believe. There's a lot of discussion around Albert's sexuality yes. and around Benjamin Disraeli's sexuality. Um, but I've, I've not found a, s a single scrap of evidence mm. that, that Victoria wrestled with it. Mm. You said that when... Melbourne made her laugh. She went off and wrote in her journal. So mm. do you have a strong sense that she had a sense of humour? Oh, she did. But she laughed most often. She had a very slapstick sense of humour. She described people in very wry ways. I mean, by the slapstick, I mean it would just kill her if, you know, a visiting dignitary would bow over and his pants would split. That would <laughs> keep them going for a cup. But it would, really, in that <laughs> stuffy environment, wouldn't it? Look, and, and, and more than a sense of humour, she had... An eye for the exotic, as so many Victorians did. Um, and for people on the periphery and people on the outside. And there was a constant train of people coming through the palace. Um, lion tamers and elephant tamers. And mm. she kept up correspondence with all of them. Um, Tom Thumb came through. Um, and she adored him and gave him respectability and bumped us up his, you know, admission price. Um, when the tallest man in the, in the world w was marrying the tallest woman, she invited them and gave her a, an enormous dress. I mean, she was about this high, they would have been <laughs> about this high, and gave them a wedding ring. She wrote a letter to the, to the elephant man once a year. Um, she, ha she was actually a very kind and tender person. She didn't have the brain of Albert to be able to look beyond her to work out what mechanics might have been behind the various social ills. But when she met people... Um, out on the other end, um, she 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 became she became very involved. But most of the stories of her laughing uproariously are with her servants. And and John Brown made her laugh. Mm. Um, he called her woman. He told her she put on weight. That she thought that was hilarious. 
Um, it was a constant struggle for her for throughout her life. What did Charles Dickens think of her? Mm. I loved that he kind of, you know, weaves in and out of her life mm. in so many ways. Um, he, he mocked the kind of regimania when she first became queen, pretending that he too had fallen in love and was hanging around Windsor Castle, like prostrate to the thought that he could never marry the Rose of England. Um, uh, she read his books and was stirred by them. Um, and it wasn't until right, right towards the end of her life that they actually met and she was quite taken by him. And I think he was quite luke, luke, lukewarm at the end, but thought her quite a, um, you know, efficient and interesting woman. Well, what, that, that brings me to something that I wondered about you in this process because often biographers have told me that it is normal to fall out of love with your subject. Mm. And I wondered whether at any point that had happened between you and Victoria and whether you'd had a kind of tussle and you'd had to reboot your respect for her. And I also wondered whether there was a particular part of the book that was most difficult to write. Mm. Yeah, I don't have not been asked that about whether there was a part that was most difficult to write, or whether there was a moment when she irritated you, or a oh moment yeah, no, there really was. Um, y y uh, it, people often ask me if I like her, I don't like her, but I really feel like she's like a, a member of the family. It's kind of like saying, "Do you like?" You know, like I know her flaws, I see it, I see the kind of beauty in her, I see her capacity for tenderness and nastiness. It's all there in sometimes a single hour, let alone over a lifetime. I see how hard she tried and how valiantly I can see the constraints on women at that time. How at every t t corner she was told to abdicate what she had to the men around her mm. and she didn't. She refused. She clung on to it. She had this innate instinct that she didn't understand herself and a thirst for life she didn't understand herself. I saw her as a teenager, just wanting to be out of her mother's clutches. And then suddenly the teen, talk about teenage dream of like, you know, like she became a queen and she could do whatever she wanted. I, I was fascinated by her falling so desperately in love with Albert and then wrestling with children, her postnatal depression. You can just see all of this forming, you know, and her comfort and her adoration of her husband and the whittling of herself. Um, the point at which I struggled with her most of all was when she went through the grief and I'm trying to understand it and I'm reading up how she really was particularly prone. But then I was like, come on. I mean, there's so many people around you dealing with so many problems that she couldn't... That it, it, there was... It, it's... Um, there can be so few psychological studies of this kind of person who is not kept in check, who doesn't have to be, who can be indulged, mm. and what that would do to you over a period of time. Um, that was the point at which I thought someone needed to kind of shake her by the shoes. Um, even though she was compassionate to other women who'd lost children, um, she certainly seemed to think her own travails far outweighed anything around her. It blinded her a lot of the time. But then... You know, she f she had to go and see a priest because she guiltily was missing Albert less because she was spending so much time with John Brown. Well, yes, um, and and I but I wondered whether, as a feminist, you found it particularly difficult when she, for example, dismissed the suffragette cause. Whether there were moments when she disappointed you when you thought, "Come on, you're a queen, you're an empress, you can do whatever you like, step up," and mm. she didn't. Whether mm. that was difficult for you. Um, look, I think I saw all the complexities in her with that. 
I always knew that she, in, in a lot of ways, represented the mindset of her subjects. And I would kind of almost delighted in the fact that she'd be like, well, Lady Amberley, a suffragist, you know, deserves a spanking, which, by the way, Lord Melbourne was all about. You didn't ask me about that. You went tabloid and we didn't talk about no. that. Um, you know, she deserves a spanking, um, you know, and women aren't meant for this, you know, as, as she drew on her relationship with Albert all the time, mm. you know. Um, women aren't meant for politics. Um, and But then you are not going to be prime minister, you're not going to be bishop, and if you don't send any more troops to, you know, off to the, off to the war, I'm going to Australia. So, so... She was she was full of that, and I and it was it's not just a an in depth digging behind the scenes that can uncover her capacity for work and her doggedness. There were women at the time who saw it. There were suffragists um, in the U.S. and the U.K. who drew on her example of someone who steadfastly worked in that in that mm. position. Mm. Now, Emily Davison, who was the woman who um, flung herself in front of the king's horse, mm. who was the martyr of the first, wa you know, um, first wave of the women's movement, wrote a letter to the Times not long before she died and said, oh, you're all talking about women's work. What can women do? What can't they do? Look at the Queen. She's meeting with cabinet ministers and prime ministers. She's writing memoranda on foreign policy. And I was fascinated to see that she was so astute that this is exactly right. Mm. And for, for decades, that part of Victoria's work wasn't acknowledged, wasn't given any validity. It was seen as some kind of static inherited power, just rubber stamp situation. That was not the case for Victoria. She fought and fought and fought and insisted on her right to be heard. So I was more interested in the fact that that, that didn't escape the suffragists. Mm. And, and, of course, there's a further question about what having, you know, having queens, two queens spanning two centuries has done to the British psyche, but that's, that's another matter. And we need session. a psychotherapist <laughs> with us. Yeah. We've got a few moments left and I've got one question left to ask you and then I'm just warning you that if you've got a question for Julia, now is the time to formulate it. So let's just go back to the Windsor archives yes. and your manuscript. You've sent them the full manuscript and they have asked for some changes. Can you just run us through that particular story because that is such an interesting position for you to be put in. Mm. So... What I did find, one thing I was inter really particularly interested in was her relationship with John Brown, which is something that gave her so much comfort when she was a widow. Um, this man who drank too much and swore too much and angered everyone in her family and she just they just went riding for hours and hours and hours on the moors and drinking whiskey. I wanted to find out what Victoria had been buried with. I knew she'd left specific instructions written in her own hand to be kept in the pocket of her dresser um, and on the moment of her death to be given immediately to Dr James Reid, her doctor for the last 20 years of her life. And in it she asked, and this is kept, I found this outside the archive, this is kept in Scotland. I found my way to these doctors, descendants who have these boxes still intact in this beautiful stone house in the Scottish lowlands. And she wrote out in this scrawl that when, she, that when she died, she wanted a number of memento and rings and the plaster of Albert's hand and various shawls. And in this hand, a photo of Albert and a lock of his hair. In this hand, a photo of John Brown and a lock of his hair. And on this hand, his mother's wedding ring, which Victoria had worn from the moment of John Brown's death. Draped upon her, Albert's handkerchief, 
than John Brown's handkerchief. Their equivalence in a moment of death is fascinating. Then he was instructed to wrap this hand in gauze and he placed flowers over it so that members of the royal family would not see what she'd been buried with. You can imagine my eagerness to cite this particular document. <laughs> and when I, when I finally got there um, and I also found some other things in there that had not ever been written about before, which was this doctor who she trusted so much. She died in his arms, one, one arm and Kaiser Wilhelm was on, was on the other. Um, was that he'd written in this weird code one day in his little in his diary he normally wrote things like going off on my his bicycle to the, the village the queen's got a fever got some dover's powder you know this perfunctory thing and then sudden down the left column and suddenly one day there's a note in the right column abbreviated this is walked in on john brown and the queen kind of flirting and he said she she lifted up her skirt and said, oh, is it here? No, the other way around. He lifted up his kilt and said, oh, is it here? And she lifted up her skirt and said, no, it's here. Okay. Oh. Make of that what you will. <laughs> um, look, I know how the Scots went with it. The, Sc the headlines when the book came out in the front of the Scots was, the Scotsman, you know, exposes himself to the Queen. Um, I don't think it was that. I th but I think that whatever they were doing was a extremely intimate game that would be highly irregular for a male and female friend, let alone a woman and her servant or a monarch and her servant. Um, and the fact that he kept it in code and he kept so many records of their relationship throughout his life. And he's the one, by the way, that got those 200 letters um, that Edward VII was being blackmailed with and burnt them. So... I wrote about all of this and Victoria's medical state on, uh, at the time of her, of her death. She was discovered to have a ventral hernia and a prolapse. And um, so they were the, all the parts that the um, archives asked me to remove. Even though I'd signed a contract to do with their material, mm. they wanted me to remove that material, um, which was large sections of the book. So, yeah, look, that took me months of legal questions of um, really a lot of time with lawyers working out what to do. I wasn't contractually obliged to. There were some copyright questions because copyright for the royal household goes on and on infinitely. But and you'll be pleased to know it's all in the book. <laughs> and, and there's a big campaign underway being led by the Times of London to try to get the, the archives to be more open and mm. transparent mm. to historians and accessible and stop concealing and controlling history. But it also made me realise this is a live history mm. and it's an important one. Well, and it's relevant even this weekend with the issue of the Diana tapes that are being broadcast with, right. you know, the sons not wanting, etc. Now, please join me in thanking Julia Baird. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.